Now this evening we are going to look at the text of the Bible. That is the text in Hebrew and Greek from which we get our translation in English of the Bible. And under this heading of the text of the Bible, we will consider the original languages of the text, its transmission over the centuries, and the ancient manuscripts containing that text. It has been the concern of scholars over the centuries to ascertain the exact text of Scripture as it originally existed. We call these studies... There's someone outside there, but you like to just... Uh, I don't know what they're doing. Uh, we call these studies um, textual criticism. That's not what is often called higher criticism. We, we give to um, this particular kind of science the name textual criticism. And it is a science not confined to the Bible alone, but applied to many kinds of literature. Its aim, its aim is to determine the original text by studying all the available manuscripts, material, and evidences. And somehow to come to a conclusion as to what was the um, original text. Well now that's this evening what we're going to look at. And um, as I said to you, it's a highly technical subject. Um, I can only um, pass on to you certain things that I have culled and learnt and make some observations on them. Now, first of all, let's look at the languages which have been used in the original text of the Bible. At one time, it was confidently thought that nothing was written before the time of Moses. In fact, writing itself well, had not even been thought of before that time. Some even went so far as to suggest, many in fact, uh, as to suggest that writing did not exist in the time of Moses and for quite a time after his death. Now, however, we know without any certainty that men have written for at least 5,000 years. For we have actual specimens of their writing that, of that age. It was a very strong Jewish tradition that men began to write in the generations immediately following Adam. Uh, they did not uh, believe that Adam actually wrote, but they did believe that in the generations immediately uh, succeeding Adam, men began to write. And in particular, the Jewish rabbis focused attention upon Enoch, whom they said was the one God singled out to uh, write down the first 
records of God's revelation. We now have those contained in Genesis chapter 1 to 4. And it was considered by the Jews of in our Lord's day that it was Enoch who was responsible for their writing. Well, whatever we might say, whatever we might feel about the question of writing and who wrote the first chapters of Genesis, the matter, the subject of writing is very important to us. Why? Because the Bible is God's Word written. And this is very, very important for us to understand. It's not just God's Word spoken. The Bible is God's Word written. We are told explicitly that Moses wrote at least part of the first five books of the Bible. Now, those of you who are going to take notes, here are some of the references. Perhaps we could look up at least one or two of them. Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, verse 14. And the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Then again, chapter 24 and verse 4. And then again, chapter 34, verse 27 and 28. Then again, Numbers 33 and verse 2. And then, perhaps we'll read this, Deuteronomy chapter 31, Deuteronomy 31, verse 9, And Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi. Verse 22, So Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it, to the people of Israel. Verse 24, When Moses had finished writing the words of this law in a book, to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. So the Bible explicitly tells us that Moses wrote at least part, if not a great deal more than just part, of the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch. It is more than just possible that Genesis, in particular, is based on a number of very ancient records written on clay tablets. Uh, and uh, in a language or in languages other than Hebrew. Now, tonight we can't go into all that, the whys and wherefores of it. We'd have to wait till we do Genesis again uh, to look at the uh, ground for that feeling. But it is very more than just possible that Genesis, in fact, is based on a whole number of very, very ancient and primitive records written on clay tablets, inscribed on clay tablets. 
Now, if this is the case, Moses was not only a compiler and an editor, but he was a translator as well. And again, this might explain why in one or two cases he does put a little gloss in uh, and uh, gives some further explanation of the meaning of some name or something else. We have, of course, in the Bible, a number of sources used uh, in compiling the scriptures which have completely vanished. Uh, perhaps you would like to look at uh, just a few of them. For instance, Numbers, chapter 21. Numbers 21, verse 14. I don't know if you've ever thought about these. Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. Now what is this book of the wars of the Lord? We don't know. It has completely vanished. But it was evidently a source for this song that we have in Numbers 21. It has vanished. Then again in Joshua chapter 10. Joshua 10. And um, verse 13. Um, last part of this verse. Is, not, is this not written in the book of Jeshar? The sun stayed in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. And so on. Um, this little poem that goes before that verse, contained in verse uh, 12 and 13, is... It's written in the book of Jeshar. Now, what is the book of Jeshar? It's vanished. We don't know. But it was a source that whoever wrote Joshua used in his comp compiling of this book. Then again, 2 Samuel, chapter 1, verse 18. 2 Samuel 1, verse 18. Here we've got it again. In the time of Samuel it was still remembered. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jeshar. There you've got it again. And then um, another sample of a number of other sources, which we won't spend our time looking into. Two Chronicles, second book of Chronicles, chapter 9, verse 29. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, from first to last, are they not written in the history of Nathan the prophet, and in the prophecy of Ahijah the Shilonite, and in the visions of Edo the seer concerning Jeroboam the son of Nebat? All those sources have vanished. Uh, there are a number of others mentioned, of course, in uh, Samuel and Kings, uh, chronicles that have been written, and so on, which we no longer have. They have vanished. But these are old sources that were used in the compiling of Scripture. They have gone from us. Now there are three languages used in the text of the Bible. Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek. Nearly the whole Old Testament is in Hebrew with some small, with a very small number of passages, comparatively speaking, in Aramaic, 
whilst the whole of the New Testament is in Greek without exception. Now let's just look at these um, languages. First of all, Hebrew. Hebrew belongs to the Semitic language family of languages and its Western group. You will see up here on the board, I have put uh, the division of the Semitic family of languages. The northern group, Amorite and Aramaic. The western group, Canaanite, Moabite, Phoenician and Hebrew. The eastern group, the languages of Babylon and Assyria, Akkadian. And the southern group, the languages of Arabia and Ethiopia. Of course, even to this day, there is still such a thing as Ethiopic, uh, for instance. Most widely spoken Semitic language today is Arabic. Um, now, Hebrew belongs to the Western group of this family of languages. This group which includes Canaanite, Moabite, and Phoenician. Um, it is not called Hebrew in the Old Testament, uh, but it is called variously the language or lip of Canaan. You can find that, uh, for instance, in Isaiah 19 and verse 18, or it is called the Jews' language, Isaiah 36 verse 11, or Nehemiah 13 verse 24. Uh, but never is it referred to in the Old Testament as Hebrew. But in the New Testament, we do find um, a reference to Hebrew, meaning Hebrew, and not Aramaic, in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 6, and in Revelation 16 and verse 16, where it expressly says about uh, this thing in the Hebrew tongue. Although after the return from exile... Aramaic gradually became the vernacular of the people. Hebrew remained the sacred language of the nation, rather like Latin in the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, no one speaks Latin except the Roman Catholic priest. But if there is a Vatican Council, the whole thing is conducted in Latin. And uh, you see, it's a sacred language, a religious language. In this way, when the Jews returned from exile to the Promised Land and to Jerusalem, Aramaic took over gradually as the colloquial language of the people, the language in which all uh, commerce and all life, in fact, was conducted. But Hebrew remained the language of religion. And it was in Hebrew that the rabbis debated, and all Jews loved debate. Uh, it was in Hebrew that the rabbis discussed and debated, and it was in Hebrew that they wrote um, everything. It has never died out. In fact, if I'd only had time, but I've been very, very busy the last few days, I wanted someone to get for you today, one of the big Israeli daily papers. Because today, Hebrew has become one of the languages, again, one of the modern languages of the world. It is the official language of Israel, and uh, you will even see a, um, a newspaper uh, now in uh, Hebrew. 
It's quite amazing the revival that there has been uh, of Hebrew. Well, now, the most of the Old Testament is in Hebrew. It's um, a peculiarly beautiful language. It is not abstract. It is not vague. It is absolutely concrete. And in some amazing way, the Lord chose Hebrew rather than some of the other languages as the medium for his revelation. It would be a very interesting study uh, uh, for someone better qualified than I um, to um, point out to us, perhaps to explain to us uh, just how Hebrew perhaps is better um, given to translation um, it's, uh, the ideas in, in God's revelation um, are more able to be translated from Hebrew than perhaps some other language. I can think of some languages where it would have given us a terrible headache uh, to translate them into uh, all the languages of the world. But in some strange way, Hebrew has lent itself to translation into nearly every tongue of the world. Now, the second great language of the Bible is Aramaic. Aramaic, as you can see, is again a Semitic language, and it belongs to the northern group of those languages, including Amorite. It is called in the Old Testament the Syriac language, if you want to look at it. For instance, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says that he spoke in the Syriac tongue. And it is often referred to in old books as Chaldee, quite mistakenly, but you will often see old Chaldee dictionaries and so on, uh, partly because of this uh, reference in Daniel 2.4 where it speaks of the Chaldeans coming into the ki to the king and speaking in the Syriac language. In fact, it was the language of Syria and the upper regions of the Euphrates. It seems that by the 8th century before Christ, and certainly by Sennacherib, King uh, Sennacherib's day, uh, in the 7th century, Aramaic was the diplomatic language of the Assyrian Empire. Now, if you want evidence for that, if you look up 2 Kings and chapter 18 and verse 26, you will find that remarkable story of Rabshakeh, wonderful name, wonderful title, um, uh, the Assyrian who stood below the walls of Jerusalem and insisted on shouting in Hebrew to the people, uh, to King Hezekiah and his uh, government. And you will remember, if you look very carefully at the account in verse 26, that Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebner, and Joah, said, said to Rabshakeh, Pray, speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, that is the Jews' language, within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Of course, Rabshakeh didn't listen to that, for his whole purpose in speaking in Hebrew was to frighten the people of Jerusalem. But the diplomatic language of the day was Aramaic. And really all King Hezekiah's government was saying, his administration was saying to Rabshakeh, cup-bearer um, of the king of Assyria, was, will you please obey the international laws and speak in the, dipl in our, in the diplomatic language? Please uh, uh, refrain from speaking in Hebrew and uh, confine yourself 
to Aramaic. It was to continue as the official language in the Persian Empire until its overthrow in 331 BC. In fact, a certain form of Aramaic was used in the civil service of the succeeding empires, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Persian, and has come to be called Imperial Aramaic, like all civil servants, um, or I should perhaps be careful, uh, tend to be rather stuffy, uh, officialese sort of uh, is comes to be part of the jargon for civil service, and this uh, kind of Aramaic was a kind of officialese Aramaic, and has actually got the name given to it by scholars of Imperial um, Aramaic, or Empire Aramaic, or some call it King's Aramaic. If you want to see an example of that, then you look up Ezra, and in Ezra you will see certain documents given in Aramaic, and those, those documents are given in the civil service language of the Persian Empire. They are in what we call Imperial Aramaic. As we have said already, uh, it gradually, that is Aramaic, gradually superseded Hebrew um, after the return from Babylon as the spoken language of Palestine and remained so until the 7th century after Christ. Now this does not mean that Aramaic is a younger language than Hebrew. Um, in fact, it would seem clear that it was the original language of the patriarchs. In other words, Abraham probably spoke Aramaic, that was his own mother tongue, um, before he somehow adopted Hebrew when he moved to the land. This is very interesting because there's a, a verse in uh, Genesis which tells us when Laban and, um, and Jacob parted, they both built a little ca uh, one cairn of stones, and one of them called it one name, and the other called it the other name. That's very interesting. Laban was Jacob's uncle. He called it by an Aramaic name, but Jacob called it by a Hebrew name. So it would seem that um, uh, Jacob's family originally spoke Aramaic to begin with. Now again, this is very interesting, but we've got to leave it uh, tonight. Now what is in Aramaic in the Old Testament? Well, one name in Genesis, uh, chapter 31, verse 47, is in Aramaic. One verse... In Jeremiah, most interesting, why one verse out of the whole, the longest book in the Bible, should be in Aramaic. Chapter 10, verse 11, read it if you want to sometime. And some passages in Daniel and Ezra. Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, to chapter 7, verse 28, a very large portion in Aramaic. Of course, Daniel spoke Aramaic very easily. He was, of course, as you know, I think, Prime Minister, more or less, of the Persian Empire. And uh, so he had to be thoroughly versed in Aramaic as well as Hebrew. And Ezra, certain portions of Ezra are in Aramaic from chapter 4, verse 3, to chapter 6, verse 18, 
and chapter 7, verse 12 to verse 26. Now, if you've got a revised version, I think even in the authorised version, you will see in the margin, uh, you'll see a little number in the text, and if you look over, you'll see in Aramaic, from here until so-and-so. Now, those are the Aramaic portions of God's Word. It was the language spoken not only uh, by the people of God when they returned from uh, Babylon, but it was the language spoken everywhere by everyone in the New Testament days in Palestine. It was, in fact, and this is uh, a matter to think about, it was, in fact, the language of our Lord Jesus. He never spoke Hebrew. He spoke Aramaic. That was his language. It was the language of the apostles. They spoke Aramaic. And it was the language of the early church in Palestine. They spoke Aramaic. Now we have some evidence of this in, of this, of, of this in the Aramaic words that have still come to us in our New Testament. Now if you look very swiftly um, at them, oh, sorry. Um, if you look very swiftly at them, um, in uh, Mark chapter 5, verse 41, you remember when the Lord Jesus said to uh, the little girl to arise, he said, Talitha kumi, which is Aramaic, not Hebrew. It's Aramaic. Chapter 5, verse 41. And then, um, chapter 7, verse 34. Again, if Fata be opened when he spoke in Aramaic again to the man whose ears uh, were stopped. Again, in chapter 15, verse 34, that great cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that's Aramaic, not Hebrew, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Acts chapter 1 and verse 19, Akko Dharma, the field of blood, where Judas went and hanged himself and was buried. And then, perhaps you've never known this, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 22, the word Maranatha, Maranatha, as we say, is in fact not a Hebrew word, it's not a Greek word, it is an Aramaic word, till the Lord come, or the Lord come. Now, there are some other Aramaic words in our New Testament as well. Mammon, that's an Aramaic word. Uh, Abba, that's not a Hebrew word. Not a Hebrew word. Uh, it is, in fact, uh, an Aramaic word, which was taken over by all Hebrews as well. And then again, Golgotha is an Aramaic word. And Gabatha, the pavement, where the Lord was stripped and beaten. Uh, all these words are Aramaic. And the Greek of the Gospels and some parts of Acts suggest their Aramaic background. And the possibility of older Aramaic records being used in their writing. For example, Luke 1 from verse 5 to Luke chapter 2, verse 52, uh, seem to have an Aramaic document which was translated into Greek behind it. Now, it may surprise some of you that today Aramaic is still spoken 
in one part of the world, in some parts of the world, it is spoken by certain Iraqi Christians, Persian Christians, and Syrian Christians, even to this day. Now, the third language of the text of the Bible is Greek, for it was neither Aramaic nor Hebrew that was used for writing the New Testament. And this is rather remarkable, considering that everything began with Aramaic speakers and in an Aramaic background. Yet it was Greek that was used as the medium for the New Testament. From the time that Alexander the Great conquered the Assyrian Empire, uh, the Persian Empire, sorry, in 331 BC, and the great Greek era began, Greek became increasingly the diplomatic language of the whole empire, until in New Testament times it was the international language of the whole Mediterranean. Latin was used, of course, in the Western Mediterranean a little more, although everyone was mostly bilingual, so there's Latin and Greek. Even in Rome itself, all cultured people spoke Greek, and most of the not-so-cultured and educated people had some knowledge of Greek. Latin was used exclusively in the Roman army and administration. But you see, the, one, the wonderful thing is that, that Greek became, as it were, the chosen language by which God was to um, complete the revelation he has given to us in what we call the Bible. Now, Greek is not a Semitic language. It belongs to the Indo-European family of languages. Uh, the Greek of the New Testament is not classical Greek, uh, but it is the Greek used in everyday life in the first century after Christ. Um, it is often called Hellenistic Greek, to distinguish it from modern Greek and from classical Greek. It used to be fashionable to describe New Testament Greek as biblical Greek because uh, some century or so ago, it was felt that it just didn't fit anything. In fact, they said it was a special dialect all of its own. Um, they called it Jewish Greek, or Biblical Greek. Recently, however, most scholars have swung away from that position. Uh, in the light of new discoveries, they found, for instance, some while ago, a large number of letters of correspondence and bills and chits and much else in the Greek of the first uh, centuries. And when they began to really um, study it, to their amazement they found that New Testament Greek bore the most remarkable resemblance to it. And in the light of these new discoveries, uh, the relation of, the new, of New Testament Greek and the common Greek spoken and written everywhere at that time became much, much clearer. Now, Hellenistic Greek was a stage in the progress of classical Greek to modern Greek. Nevertheless, having said all that, we've also got to state quite emphatically 
that the version of the Old Testament, which we call the Septuagint, which of which we'll say a little more uh, a little later, uh, this version of the Old Testament into Greek had a tremendous influence upon New Testament Greek. You see, the Septuagint used Greek words and Hebrew uh, conceptions and construction. And in fact, it gave to some Greek terms a new outlook and a new meaning altogether. So it gave to New Testament Greek uh, uh, a flavour, a particular flavour, all of its own. We've also got to add the influence of Aramaic to the Greek of the New Testament, which uh, is, to a certain amount, uh, uh, most scholars feel, to a certain amount, has influenced uh, the Greek that we have in the New Testament. Now, here we are, we have these three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now what can we say, having looked at the languages used in the text of the Bible, what can we say about the transmission of the text? Now here's our biggest headache. The transmission of the text. What can we say about this? Well now I want you to look first of all at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Two Timothy chapter 3. Verse 16, every scripture inspired of God is also profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction which is in righteousness. Now I want you to underline the word scripture. Now will you turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1 verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. For no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spoke from God, spake from God, being moved by the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to note the word Scripture. You see, it does not speak of the Word of God, which some people could then say is the spoken Word of God. It speaks of the word Scripture, which is... The, the word used is the technical word for the writing. Not in its spoken form, but in its written form. All scripture, that is the word of God in its written form, is inspired of God. And then again, prophecy of scripture. Now this is most interesting, because the prophecy first came in a spoken form often. Rarely was it first written. Then it became written. Yet, you see, in the New Testament we're told, no prophecy of Scripture. Now, this is very, very important for us to understand. For it implies, not the spoken word, but the written word of God. And it points out the sovereign oversight of God, which can never be overstressed. The sovereign oversight of God in the writing down and transmission of his word. God did just not speak something and then leave it, as it were, um, to coincidence, to luck, uh, almost. 
God, when he spoke originally, not only spoke, but sovereignly watched over that spoken word being transmitted into writing and then transmitted down through the centuries until we have it today. Now, I want you to note that this is no idea of mine, for if you turn to John, and uh, we will take only two references out of many in the New Testament, John chapter 13 and verse 18, we read this. Uh, he says, last part of this verse, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. Now, the Lord Jesus didn't say that the word of God might be fulfilled. There we might infer from that the spoken word of God. He said, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. That is the spoken word of God in its written form might be fulfilled. And then again, in chapter 17 and verse 12, by the way, these are only two or out of many references in the New Testament to the same phrase. Chapter 17, verse 12, that the son of um, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now compare that with John chapter 10, verse 35. Listen to the words, the Lord's aside. Now, the Lord's asides are always interesting, but this is one of the most tremendous in the Bible, I think. Listen to this in brackets in my um, uh, version, standard version. And the scripture cannot be broken. That was an aside of the Lord Jesus. In fact, he was talking about something else, but as an aside, and the scripture cannot be broken, emphatically. Now the scripture, not the word of God, but the scripture cannot be broken. That is the spoken word of God in its written form. Now all this is tremendous because we are going to talk now about the transmission of the text. How did that spoken word of God's Holy Spirit in and through men come to us? We know it was written. Well, we're not going to deal with how it came to be written, but we are going to deal with how it came to us, until the invention of printing in the 15th century, the only mode of transmission was copying by hand. I think most of us in the 20th century forget this. Until the 15th century of our era, the only way that this book could come down to us was by being copied painstakingly every word of it by hand. In fact, we would have no Bible due to the perishable nature of the materials used if it had not been for the continual and painstaking copying over centuries. It is a singularly remarkable fact that our Bible has been copied by hand, at least in part, for 4,400 years. Think of it. For 4,400 years, the Bible, at least in part, has been copied by hand. We wouldn't have any of these books if it wasn't for those Oh, they must run into thousands and thousands.
who have given their lives to painstakingly copying out every word. We know that in the ancient world, from at least 2000 BC, before Christ, men received training to become expert copyists. It was, in fact, a very important function in national as well as religious life. There was no other way of compiling history. No other way of, of having your pedigree. And the Jews were people for pedigrees. Uh, genealogy. There was no other way of having it, but you had to get it copied. And your, your copy rotted. So it had to be, every now and again, you had to take it out and get it recopied. And it was so with all the archives. National and royal archives and religious archives and libraries, they had to be all continually copied and copied and copied in order that uh, there might be some um, perpetuation um, of what was written. Now, I think sometimes we forget all this. Added to all that, we must remember the tremendous regard and reverence with which, from the beginning, the sacred text was handled by scribes and copyists. This has no doubt influenced the comparative standard of accuracy. Now listen to what Josephus, one of the old Jewish historians of the first century, what he said in his um, little work against Apion. Um, I'm going to read just a little part of it. He says... And how firmly we have given credit to those books of our own nation, that is the Bible, is evident by what we do. For during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to them or take anything from them or to make any change in them. But it becomes natural to all Jews, immediately and from their very birth, to esteem those books to contain divine doctrines, and to persist in them, and, if occasion be, willingly to die for them. For it is no new thing for our captives, many of them in number, and frequently in time, to be seen to endure racks and deaths of all kinds upon the theatres, that they may not be obliged to say one word against our laws and the records of that contain them. That's Josephus. Well, now, you see, this is absolutely true. Um, the Jew had the most unbelievable and incredible reverence for the sacred text, so that he dared not meddle uh, with it. Now, in spite of that, we have to admit, in all honesty, that there have been some copyists' mistakes and errors in words and in numbers, partly explained by the nature of Hebrew script. For instance, in Hebrew writing, there is no punctuation, there is no paragraph. It is an oriental language. I well remember when I first had to really study Chinese and we um, were embarked upon our, or launched into our first Chinese novel. I don't mean a modern one. It came from something like the 12th century, and it was called the Red Monkey. And um, it was the most interminable 
book I've ever read and gave us all such a headache. For it had no paragraphs, it had no punctuation, it had no um, comma, no, no inverted commas. You never knew really where it ended or where it began. You just had to feel your way through it. And so, so with most Oriental languages, this is one of the great difficulties, especially when it came to copying by hand, in very hot weather, and the scribe perhaps felt that sleepy, a bit sleepy, and came to writing out the sacred text. We've got a little more to say about that in a moment. Another uh, peculiarity of uh, Hebrew is it has no vowels. It only has consonants in its uh, written form. And this has given rise to real difficulty. And then, too, its numbers, letters of its alphabet, stand for numbers. And so now and again, because certain um, uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet look very much alike, um, a scribe who was a little bit dozy, um, uh, I'm afraid, put the wrong number down. Now this is Hebrew. And uh, if you look at it very carefully uh, afterwards, you come and look. Um, I've got another book upstairs in the, in the study which you could look at too, shows you um, uh, the alphabet. You will notice that certain letters are very, very much alike. Now, I expect you can all see the little dots that, uh, I don't know how good your eyesight is, but you can see a lot of little dots around the more broadly penned strokes. Those little dots are an indication of the vowel sounds, and they were never there originally. They belong to a very much later date indeed. We shall say something about that in a moment. But you see, originally there were no dots at all. But the people who spoke Hebrew, Hebrew was common, they knew what was said by, more or less by the context. And they were able to gather swiftly what was meant. Now, you see, you've got some little idea of the difficulty in the transmission of the text if you look at this here uh, that I've put on the board. Now, I have put here Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3 here on the board. And I have written it more or less like the ancient um, script, uh, or both here and in the Greek form later without any, um, any punctuation, uh, any idea of meaning at all, just written together. Now you can understand what happened. Now, of course, you see what this is, the voice of him that, that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Well, now, you see, when you come to look at it, supposing I was copying that down, um, I might easily begin to make, uh, well, the first thing I would do, by the way, I made a mistake twice in writing this. I put two T's in, just in doing it. You see, it's so easy when, when you've got it all so close together. Now, you see, I can make my first division here. I can put a comma there, because I can see, you see. <laughs> the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But now tell me, tell me, what does the Lord mean? Does he mean the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness? <laughs> prepare ye the way of the Lord. Or does the Lord mean the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Now you see, how can we decide? 
Now, I, this is only a very small little illustration, but it gives you some idea of the difficulties that have come to the transmission of the text. Now, this isn't so silly. Take your... Um, who's got an authorised version here? Could someone look, look it up swiftly? Isaiah 43. Uh, if you could just um, check with me. What does it say? Listen. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, comma, prepare ye the way of the Lord, comma, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. But now look. Listen to the revised version, and now you'll begin to understand the difficulties of the text, I hope. This is the revised version. Chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one that crieth, Prepare ye in the wilderness the way of the Lord. Now, the marginal here puts that crieth in the wilderness. You see what's happened? The authorised version has felt that it's one way, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, comma, but the revised version feels that the other way is probably more correct. Prepare ye in the wilderness. Now, you see, this is the difficulty that has come through the um, through, uh, transmission of the text. Should we um, put a comma there, or should we put it there? That gives you just some little idea of the difficulties. Now, as can be seen, the result of such errors is to produce alternative or variant readings. Now, not to be confused with actual shades of meaning of a particular Hebrew word. Now, Hebrew is a very rich language, and it, it, its words, some of its words have a, a large variety of shades of meaning. And you've got this, for instance, in your Bible. Let me give you a little example of that. Um, uh, Psalm 37, Psalm 37, Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Now it says, mine has a marginal note, roll thy way upon the Lord. Now you see, the Hebrew there can roll, it's the same word, it's not a variant reading, it's um, just uh, an alternative, if you like, it's a shade of meaning in the actual Hebrew word. You can say, roll thy way upon the Lord, that's one way you can uh, um, translate this Hebrew word, or you can translate, commit thy way unto the Lord. I do believe that there's a third, um, uh, uh, open thy way unto the Lord. But the idea is the same Hebrew word, but it can in fact be translated in different ways. But if an actual mistake is made, an error is made, and it sometimes only had to be the smallest slip um, of, a, uh, of, a, of a word, of a, of a, of a letter, and uh, a very serious difference was made. Now, I want to show you on the board what I mean. Now, you all know the English word water. Water. See? W-A-T-E-R. Now, supposing um, we were to put that into Hebrew. Well, it would be this. W-T-R. That's how they would do it. They never, they never had anything for the, for the vowel sounds. 
Now, supposing I was a dozy scribe, and um, I had come to this where it says, give him water. And so I came to put it down, I was half asleep, and I thought, ah, oh, yes. Yeah, I've only made a slight slip, but I have, instead of putting in WTR, I put WFR. Now, many centuries later, this, this becomes, someone looks and says, WFR. Wafer. <laughs> Give him a wafer. That's obviously what it means. Now, in a sense, it's not serious in one way that this um, little mistake has come in. It doesn't change any great doctrine, as it were. But you can see what has happened, can't you, you see? Later on, of course, the, um, the, uh, the Masoretes, um, the rabbis, the first uh, of the... Um, uh, of our era, I'll come to that in a moment, they began to put in little tiny vowel points, you see, like this. See? That would be or and er. So it was water. But if it was wafer, then they'd have to think out something else, I suppose, more like the French, you see. <laughs> wafer, you see. So they got the idea over um, as to what really meant. That's why in this now, this is the Masoretic text, you can see all the little dots which indicate the vowel sounds. Now, this is not so funny as you might see, uh, as it may seem to you. Because you see, you take this word, the title of the Lord, the most used in the Bible, Jehovah. Jehovah. I hope you can all see it. Yes. Jehovah. Now, this... We don't even know now how originally this was pronounced, because in Hebrew, Jehovah was just Y-H-W-H. And we don't know exactly how that's pronounced. We believe, we believe that the vowel sounds were Yahweh. Yahweh. And uh, that's the nearest we've got to it, and the most generally accepted sound for the name Jehovah. But it was because of the Hebrew script that we've had this difficulty. Now, someone says, um, well, now, that's all very interesting, but how does it really affect um, us in the reading of the Bible? Now, I'm going to give you an actually concrete example of it. Uh, Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, and um, um, verse 21. Now by faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Leaning upon the top of his staff. All right, let's look back and see what he counts. At Genesis chapter 47. <coughs> 31. And he said, Swear unto me, and he swore unto him, and Israel bowed himself upon the bed's head. Now, how on earth is the bed's head a staff in the New Testament? In the Genesis, we're told that Jacob bowed himself upon the bed's head. He worshipped on the bed's, leaning on the bed's head. 
And Hebrews tells us that he worshipped leaning on the staff. Well, you see, it is rather, it's quite simple. I just put it down. You see, the Hebrew for bread and for staff are the same. Can you all see down here? The consonants are M, T, H. But you see, with this difference, bread was pronounced mita, and uh, staff was pronounced mate. But you see, there was no vowel sounds. Now, when the Septuagint translators came to this, they evidently used um, a, a, um, a, a text for their translation which suggested that it was a staff and not a bed. So they wrote in Greek, and he bowed himself uh, on the top of his staff, you see. So this is how, in fact, small, they're very small errors, how, in fact, they uh, have come into the actual text of, um, um, of the um, Bible. Now, let's just look a little more at this. I have said... You can, the, the, as can be seen from what I've said here, um, the result of such errors is to produce alternative or variant readings, not to be confused with actual shades of meaning within one Hebrew word. Now, I'm going to give you some examples, but I want one of you with an authorised version, please, who's got an authorised version handy, to check. Up, otherwise, we should be here all night. Um, Psalm 100. Psalm 100. Psalm 100, verse 3. Now, Bob, could you read that, please? Uh, know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Now, do you know what my version says? Know ye that the Lord, he is God, it is he that hath made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Now, the authorised version says, and not we ourselves. My version says the exact opposite. It says, uh, and we are his. And it all depends on one small vowel sound. And uh, evidently some scribe uh, was not quite clear on this. And we really, truthfully, don't know which was the original one. Actually, both are lovely, aren't they? And this is the wonder of variant readings. Because, in fact, so often, the Lord seems to use the variant readings. For instance, what does it matter if it says, It is he that hath made us, and not ourselves. Praise the Lord, it wasn't ourselves. He hath made us. So we can thank God for that. But if we read, it is he that hath made us, and we are his, praise the Lord for that. They're both right. It doesn't really matter, you see. Then again, look at Isaiah chapter 9. Now, this is a little bit more difficult. Isaiah 9. Verse 3. Now, uh, Bob, would you like to read it again? Thou hast multiplied the nation, and not increased the joy. They joy before thee, according to the joy in harvest, and that men rejoice when they divide the spoil. 
Now, my version says much more sensibly, Thou hast multiplied the nation, thou hast increased their joy. What does yours say, Bob, again, please? Uh, and not increased their joy. Yes, and not increased their joy. Thou hast increased their joy. Now, in this instance, it is quite clear that the scribe was asleep. When he, um, uh, when he uh, uh, um, put this little point here, you see what I mean? It, it seems quite clear there that it has to be corrected. And in our latest versions, they, they, this, these little points have been actually corrected where it is necessary. Uh, you see, again, it was just one single letter, that's all, uh, that, was, um, that was overlooked. And it has changed... Um, the thing, you've heard the story um, about the man who was an atheist and had a big plaque put up in his, um, in his uh, living room God is nowhere and then he asked his little girl when she came in read that to me and she read God is now here <laughs> it's, it's, sometimes it's a question of how we look at it uh, and um, this throws a lot of light, in fact, upon what some of the scribes, I'm afraid, did uh, with some of the scriptures. Now, we've got another variant, um, which is very interesting. Um, that one I've just given you shows where there's got to be a correction made. Now, here's another, which is a very interesting variant. Revelation, this is the, a Greek one. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5. Um, now, Bob, could you read it, please, again? And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, washed us from our sins. Now, listen to this version. Unto him that loveth us and loosed us from our sins. Now the difference here is, I, I, I think I'm right from memory, I haven't got it in my notes, but I believe it is the one letter S. O. Oh. O. Oh, yes, I can't remember. Yes. Uh, that's all. One single letter has made all the difference between loose and wash. But in fact, both, uh, um, both words uh, a blessed of God. It is true, we have been washed from our sins in his blood. And what, what's more, we've been loosed from our sins in his blood. I think perhaps loosed has got a, a, a stronger feeling about it because we're, we're actually delivered from them. They're, they're loosed from us, taken right off us. But the idea is inherent in washing. What do you do with dirt? You remove it from yourself when you wash. And that's really the idea in loosing. So in the most wonderful way, you see, um, you've got a variant due to some small error that's come. We don't really know what is the actual original in this. It could be washed. It could be loose. I think most authorities lean to loosing. But here again is another example um, of this... Uh, um, small error in transmission. Well, I think we can say this, that in fact, considering the period of time covered and the complexity 
of some of the records transmitted, copied, and the amount of the material involved, it is a real wonder that the mistakes are so few and so unimportant. Uh, not one, and I cannot stress this enough, not one single doctrine in the whole Bible is affected by any one of these errors. Nor is any one of the major themes of the Bible impaired. But I want to go farther and say this, not even one of the minor themes of the Bible is impaired by any one of these errors. This, I think, is the most remarkable evidence of the oversight of God. Now, I want to uh, quote uh, again from, a, from uh, Bruce. Um, he uh, quotes um, one of the editors of the latest revision, which is the American Revised Standard Version, and he quotes him as saying this, It will be obvious to the careful reader that still in 1946, when this was brought out, as in 1881, that is the English Revision, and 1901, that is the American Standard Version, no doctrine of the Christian faith has been affected by the revision for the simple reason that out of thousands of variant readings in the manuscript, none has turned up thus far that requires a revision of Christian doctrine. Now, I think that's absolutely remarkable. Uh, I mean, I, really, it staggers one, in fact. When one remembers that uh, even since the invention of printing, mistakes get into uh, publication. I think I've often told you the story about the first, one of the first editions of sacred songs and solos, which only when it was just about to go out did they discover to their horror a most dreadful mistake in one of our best known hymns and had to withdraw the whole edition. In guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. The last line ends, and land me safe on Canaan's side. But one slip, and he had changed, turned into Y, and it had, and land my safe on Canaan's side. And the whole edition had to be withdrawn. Of course, it was so against Christian doctrine. Uh, feel of the dear saints singing about their safe being landed safe on Canaan's side. So that had to be withdrawn entirely and uh, replaced. But you know, in fact, um, it's not only in hymnals that mistakes, some awful mistakes have got in, but in actual fact in our printed versions of the Bible. Um, one, for instance, which is, I must say, a highly amusing um, mistake, was in Psalm 119 and uh, verse 61. It was one of the old editions 
of the Bible. And um, I got that wrong, but it's 161, just wait. Yes, it's 161, verse 161. Princes have persecuted me without a cause. Now that's uh, how it should have been uh, printed. But whether some printer's apprentice with a grudge against his master, or that I don't know. But he substituted the word prince uh, by printer. And into the version of the Bible came printers have persecuted me without cause. <laughs> the whole edition had to be withdrawn as of many, many years ago. And perhaps the greatest example of mistake in the Bible in printing, for instance, the invention of printing, was in the what was came to be called the Wicked Bible because of the omission in the seventh commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, thou shalt not commit adultery, the omission of the word not, so that it came out that all the other thou shalt not, and there it had thou shalt commit adultery, and it was popularly called the Wicked Bible, and had to be withdrawn. So, you see, why, why do I tell you, I'm not just saying, telling you these things to make you laugh. Actually, when we come to the versions of the Bible, there'll be much more to make you laugh, I'm afraid. Um, but why I'm telling you these uh, things is that, you see, it seems to me no mean feat that with all that copying by hand over centuries and centuries and centuries, so few mistakes, in fact, have come through. Um, I wonder what we can say. I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to talk about manuscripts tonight. I think uh, you've had enough. But um, I will instead just say a few things I was going to say in conclusion, and uh, we'll no doubt say them again uh, next week, but I'll just say them simply, draw it all to a close. It seems, in conclusion, that it is singularly remarkable, considering all the evidence we have, that we hold today a text of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which are both substantially and essentially what was originally written, and to whose accuracy all the latest discoveries test. It cannot be explained in any other way than by the sovereign oversight of the Holy Spirit of God, who, having spoken the word, watched over its being written, and has ever since watched over its transmission. And not only its transmission by hand and through printing presses, but I would like to say, as we shall look at in a further study, has, I believe, watched over its translation into the various tongues of the world. I think we can say that we have enough to try our faith and enough to bring us onto our knees 
in wonder. Don't ask me why the Lord hasn't kept out uh, all the little mistakes and there is why he didn't he? The easiest thing in the world for the Lord would have been not to have allowed any scribe to forget to dot a T, uh, to dot an I or cross a T. But the Lord didn't do it. And uh, we can't explain why he didn't do it. But the Lord did watch over every single thing that was important. And we've got it. It is an, an, the most remarkable thing that we've got a Bible. In 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 its entirety, and not only in its entirety, but in the form, essentially, in which it was first written. And yet the Lord has allowed these little things to come in. Why? Why? I say we have enough evidence to baffle us, to give, perhaps, sometimes cause for doubt, to try our faith, and we've certainly got enough evidence to bring us onto our knees in worship and wonder. Uh, but God has brought this book to us. I would like to say again, God is not clinical. I think some Christians in their whole approach try to be clinical and thereby get themselves into an awful mess. It seems the more I study these things, the more I see of them, my observation in closing would be this that uh, that you cannot really be clinical in your but God is not clinical. It is absolutely inspired, absolutely reliable and dependable, absolutely trustworthy. And yet we have got some evidences of human frailty and human weakness, humanity. Uh, even in the actual text of the Bible, but in such a way that in the end it glorifies God. And that's the last thing we can say about the text of the Bible. The very errors glorify God. Uh, it's a, a reminder to me that the whole thing is left could have sunk into an abyss of complete distortion, perversion, and utter obliteration in parts. A reminder that it could have done, and yet God did not allow it. And not only did he not allow it, but sometimes the very variant readings are in themselves a blessing. Well, I can't explain that. I have to leave it. But I must say that it is uh, one of the causes that strengthens my faith rather than weakens it. Dear Lord Jesus, we do thank thee for thy word, which thou hast brought to us in such a remarkable way. We are so often, Lord, found to be people ignorant of the way it has come to us. Some of the problems that are over, that... Uh, are involved in it, but Lord, we want to worship thee this evening that in our hands we have an entire Bible. And we have a revelation that begins and ends. Lord, in which thou hast in the most wonderful and in an unfolding way revealed thyself. 
And all we can say, Lord, is that we need thy Holy Spirit to lead us into an ever greater appreciation and experience of what thou hast revealed. So help us, Lord, and use this study to really strengthen our faith and not weaken it, and to give us strong foundations upon which we can stand. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.